0: But tonight, on the back end of chapter 10, we have sort of a parenthetical time period, this cycle of the people fall into sin, they worship false gods, they compromise everything, and God chastens them, allows them to be defeated by their surrounding oppressors and enemies. They cry out for deliverance, he gives them a deliverer. And they have revival, the deliverer dies, and the cycle repeats itself. That's what we've been seeing happening for the people of covenant this time. And as we come to the latter part of chapter 10, in verses 9, excuse me, in verses 6 through 10, Israel was greatly oppressed. It says that they did evil, that God sold them into the hands of the Philistines, that they were severely distressed, and they they cried out to the Lord and unlike any other time that we've seen in the book of Judges, the Lord says something so profound and sobering to them in verse 14. He said, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. When God gives up on people, like we would never know if God gave up on somebody. We could never know that. And we'd have a reason in the New Covenant, the New Testament, to believe that God wouldn't give up on people. But there are still some very powerful warnings in the New Testament where people are determined to go a certain way and rebel against the Lord, and there are warnings, like in the book of Hebrews and other places, where this principle, where God says, go and cry out and see what they've done, see if they deliver you. And there are times where people, and we're talking about the people of covenant here, this is not for the world, this is for people of covenant, in this context Israel, in our context tonight, followers of Jesus Christ, people confess Jesus as Lord, where you just try and have it both ways, or you just turn your back on the Lord, just going to do what you want to do, 34 years, how many times I've heard people say that God wants me happy and they think happiness in their mind is sin and they just formulate a theology to live in sin and they think they're good and they settle for a, te- a cheap grace which, of course, the New Testament warns about more than once for sure. So it's in this background for Israel and their covenant that God says, hey, go cry out to them, see if they'll deliver you. You want to you live this way? You want to live in that kind of sin? Let, let's see where, where it takes you there. And we know the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man or a woman, but the end thereby is death. And we know that people make choices that look good, but we know from the biblical perspective, we would know they didn't look good. It never, it's never a good ending when you start without the Lord or going against the Lord. But it may seem favorable at first, but in the end, it's, it's going to always be bondage and misery. And so that was the background to our main text tonight, verse 15 and 16, verses 15 and 16, and it, where God just said, You're on your own. And it's at this point in verse 15 that the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul, that is God's, could no longer endure the misery of Israel. These couple of verses are very powerful and insightful to us. And again, the the preceding verse where God says, you just, you know, you chose that. Uh, You know, in the world we say, you made your bed, sleep in it. We say stuff like that. Like that's, you cast your lot, now you live with it. Those sorts of things. And that's what God said to them. And they refuse to uh, accept that. And they cry out, we have sinned do to us whatever seems best to you only deliver us this day we pray so this phrase do to us whatever seems best to you what a phrase think about that do to us whatever seems best to you this is the ultimate phrase whereby which an individual or a family or a people or a community might say God we are totally in your hands do to us what seems best to you there is your God, your good There is, this is beyond, we can't do anything to change this. We cast our lot completely wholly with you. And you said you've given up on us, and we're going to tell you we've sinned. We're going to put away our sin. We are totally at your mercy. We are are totally lost without you. Do to us whatever seems best to you. This is the end of ourselves. Because we usually have a plan. People normally have some kind of a plan, like plan B, C, D, or E, or whatever. And even with the Lord, we're like, well, if if God doesn't come through that way, we can still do this and fall back on that. But they're at a place where if God doesn't, and this isn't deliverance in the way, like sometimes we've seen deliverance in the Old Testament already. This is like, this is their sin put them in this place. This is like the full consequence of rebellion against God upon them Nationally affecting all of them. When we talk about that verse, it says, If my people who are called by my name will cry out to me, I will hear their prayer and repent from their sins. I will hear their prayer and heal their land. It's a very popular verse. It was a big part of the whole prayer walk last year around this time for our nation when people prayed for our nation as we did. But that verse contextually is for Israel in the Old Testament. Now, the principle can apply to believers in the New Testament, but in its fullest sense, as a nation, the only nation that ever had a covenant with God is the nation of Israel. And so, contextually, we realize that collectively as a people, they weren't just a spiritual entity like the church worldwide tonight, but they were a literal physical entity in a place and location. They had a national flag, even as Israel does today with the Star of David, but they were a people of covenant. So it's very different than the church it's a shadow of things to come, but that's their context. And that verse would apply to them. And as we see through the Old Testament with the kings later on in 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Chronicles, we see that with a series of kings over about a three-four 400 year period, when the, a king would be a spiritual leader and would lead the people, very different than the judges, would lead the people to be restored with God, God would do great things through them, like Jehoshaphat. Or and Actually, Sam was teaching the men the other night on this, so you guys that were there, you, you remember this. But like Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah, they did, they did great things, and they stirred the people. They weren't just wise economically like Solomon was, because he didn't elevate the people spiritually. They, Josiah sent out messengers like, hey, let's keep the Passover, let's all come together. And people mocked his messengers, but some still came and kept the Passover. Hezekiah had the same type of thing. So for them, at various times in their history, when they were so broken, they were broken from their sins, the consequences of their sin on a national level, they would cry out and God would heal their land. But they had to be at the end of themselves. And that principle would apply to believers, followers of Jesus Christ, on this day, November twentieth, 2021. That would be our application, that when we come to the end of ourselves and we've reaped the consequences of bad decisions, decisions without acknowledging the Lord, choosing the way that seems right, but then thereby is death. And again, the context is sin, rebellion against God, absolute, not gray area stuff, not personal choices that maybe weren't good. We're talking about willful sin against the Lord. Choosing to lie, choosing to steal, choosing to have fraud, choosing to embezzle, choosing to commit adultery, choosing to be unfaithful. Choosing to take life and justify it. Those kind of sins. That's what we're talking about here. Because there's lots of people who go to church this day around the planet, tomorrow the 21st, who have chosen to lie, have chosen to steal, have been ruthless with family estates and trusts and lawsuits. They've been vicious while going to church and serving in leadership or just attending church. They have killed the innocent. They've slandered the righteous, and they're guilty, and they call themselves Christians. We don't want that to be us. I don't think it naturally stands out to any of us. That's how we choose to live our life. But what can happen for believers is you can be in a good place, and then you make a decision, a bad decision, that you know God's not. it goes against his word. And then you begin to have to make, if you don't repent of that, you compound it with more bad decisions. And if you truly belong to the Lord, you'll come to a place where it'll all implode, you might lose everything. When I did the drug and alcohol ministry in Calvary Vista back in 1988 and 89, 90, we dealt with people who were miserable because they had lost everything because of drugs and alcohol. Vista had a lot of crystal meth back in the 80s, uh, speed, crystal methamphetamine, and these guys and girls would come in who had just so destroyed their lives, broken their parents' heart, broken their spouse's heart, and neglected their children, done great evil by being in bondage to these drugs and alcoholism as well. And some would be at the end of themselves, but some would be like Esau. Because if you know Esau in the Old Testament... The New Testament looks back on Esau, He was the brother of Jacob, the son of uh, uh, Isaac. We're told that Esau sought repentance with tears but did not find it. Because his tears weren't the tears of being at the end of himself. He was not one who'd say, do to us whatever seems best to you. His tears were simply like, I'm miserable, I don't like jail, and I want to get out of jail, so please get me off the hook and show mercy to me. More than once, I've been asked to come write a letter on behalf of someone going to jail as their pastor. More than once, I've shown up at court to lobby on behalf of someone as a character witness who's about to be sentenced. It's kind of awkward, you know, as a pastor, but you just don't know. I mean, you hope for the best, but you know, people can put on a show for one or two years to impress pastoral leadership to get their spouse back, to not go to jail for five years, but just to be on parole. People do a lot of different things and they're desperate and they love to leverage spiritual leadership to be on their side to get a favorable response with a spouse or with family, with friends or anything like that. But God knows. God knows when you and I, me, you, he knows when we're broken and we sincerely mean do to us whatever seems best to you. This isn't losing your job. This isn't being having things forced on you. This is the result of sin. We need to keep that in mind in the context. And we just realize, like, man. And we're not playing a religious game to get a favorable environment back to be continually dysfunctional in ongoing sin. But we are truly broken but what has happened? And we are sincere. Our heart is sincere before the Lord. To to beat His mercy in whatever He says. Now, David, in the Old Testament, King David, a couple hundred years after this, is an excellent example of how this works because he was the man with a heart after God, and he experienced this situation more than once. In his old age, he took a census to count the people. Kings like to count people because it's strength in numbers and it's strength in taxes and tribute and stuff like that. And even Joab, who is quite the character himself, his chief general, said it's a bad idea. The guy who was never spiritual said, David, it's a really bad idea to take a census. You're not that kind of king. That's not the kind of king you are. That's not Israel's king. And David did it, and then, you know, the, the Lord allowed him to do it. And then we're told in one account, because it's in two accounts in the Old Testament, that David's heart condemned him. And he cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, I've sinned. Like they said, we've sinned. He said, I've sinned. And God says, yes, you have. And now you can choose for yourself three things. Three years of famine, three months routed by your enemies, or three days with the plague from the Lord. And he said something very interesting there. He said, you know, I'll choose three days with the Lord's plague, but please don't deliver me into the hands of men. There's a lot of wisdom right there. Wouldn't you, I'll take three days with the mercy of God, whatever that beatdown looks like, over men who are ruthless. If you haven't figured anything out in the last two years, I'm sure you've figured out men and women are ruthless with power. Sociopaths, narcissistic people, psychopaths. Humanity is dreadfully evil. And those that are empowered most with humanity often impute the greatest amount of evil on the rest of humanity. And David said, God, let me not fall in the hands of men, but on the mercies of God. See, that's, that's the end of himself. Do what's best as you see fit. David knew the heart of God. And he knew the safest place on your worst day of sin, when you feel most naked before the throne of God in time, space and matter, was to cast ourselves wholly on God's mercy and say, do whatever seems best to you. And that's a great prayer for broken women and broken men who are broken because of our sins and our failures. Us older people understand very well what that feels like. The younger people, maybe, but you will in due time. You know, when I first went into ministry, when Brian Broderson approached me at the beginning of October of 1987 to consider being an interim pastor at Calvary Chapel Vista, I said, absolutely not. Because I have failed in relationships. I have failed as an employee. I have, fa- I have failed as a son. I have failed in so many ways. But I do not want to add to my resume a failures, Ministry. That's the same month, for those of you who remember, that Jimmy Swaggert fell from grace, October 1987. So there in the, the mocking of Jimmy Swaggert on national TV before the Internet, Dan Rather, Tom Brokaw, they all mocked and ridiculed Jimmy Swaggert every night. And Jim Baker went down about the same time. And I would see the news, and the devil's like, that's going to be you. You're going to be a big failure, and people are going to laugh at you and laugh at God because of you. So when Broderson came, and said, Hey, the no! Absolutely not. And then I went to that surf contest in San Francisco, and I almost drowned on Halloween Day in 1987 in 20-foot surf at Ocean Beach. Spoke at a small church that night. That was a testimony in the movie Sunriders. A very famous testimony. And uh, I drove home the next day. Some of you know the story, but I drove home from Santa Cruz the next day, November 1st, and Greg Laurie had a cassette tape series. Remember cassette tape series? People... And it was uh, used by God. It was a six-tape cassette series by Greg Laurie. Used by God. This is 1987. This is right when the Harvest Book came out, not his book, but Pastor Chuck's Harvest Book with Steve Mays and everybody and what they did. And I listened to Greg. I had Greg Glory in the car for six hours. And one of those studies was "Forgiven and Used." It was a very important study that, like, how we fail in ministry, but God restores us in ministry if we're broken by our failure. So I got back, and I told Brian Broderson, um, I'm going to do it. But before I told him I would do it, the, the, the thought that God really imposed upon my heart and mind is this. You will fail. You're going to fail from start to finish. My grace is sufficient for you. Failure is inevitable, but growth is optional. And that's what you need to remember That from your failures to bring forth growth. So in 34 years of ministry, what I've always tried to do with my failures, and they are many, public and private, is I try and grow and learn from those failures. That's what David did. These people said, we've sinned. When David sinned with Bathsheba and committed adultery against his, one of his best friend's wives, in Psalm thirty fifty one, when he was the psalm about that, he said, against you, O Lord, and you only have I sinned. Now, his sin affected Bathsheba. It affected Uriah. It affected the whole nation of Israel. But he knew that sin ultimately, which is rebellion against God, against his holiness, and most of us in this room know what sin means, so I don't have to go detailed into it, but he said, against you I've sinned. What's interesting, though, before that happened is when Nathan the prophet came to him. And David thought he got, you know, David had a really, he had a good plan. He got the girl. Uriah was killed. And no one knew. It, it seemed like he, he, you know, like the perfect crime. Like he would really pulled off this, this perfect crime. It seemed that way. In another psalm, he would say, looking back on that, that his bones rotted within within him. So we never get away with anything. And sometimes the real prison someone's in is not a jail cell, but their conscience convicting them and condemning them for the evil they've done to someone else. And David was rotting within. So as he's this king in in the the zenith of his kingdom, and he's the empathetic king who's going to marry his buddy's wife, you know, the bride of this, this man who was killed in combat serving the kingdom and David's a hero he's mar- marrying her Nathan comes in and says you know, the whole parable about the sheep and he says you know this one man had all these sheep and he could have had all the sheep he ever wanted but a, a visitor came and he, his neighbor had one sheep and he took his neighbor's sheep and, and slaughtered that sheep to give to his, to his visitor and uh, David just this parable just, oh, David was furious he's like who is the man who's done this I'll kill him and Nathan the prophet said you're the man because I raised you up from taking care of the sheep and I gave you everything you ever wanted and I would have given you more if you'd asked for it, but you took another man's wife and you killed him and now you've brought sin upon all Israel and God said, the the baby's not going to survive. You'll have strife within your offspring. Your, Your children as they grow up, there'll be strife. And you know what David said? I've sinned. Let it be as spoken. It's like this. We're in your hands. He, he's, he's all, all, you know, the Bible tells us all things are bare and naked and open before him through who must give an account. And I, I don't think of nakedness very often, but nakedness is something embarrassing for most people. When people aren't embarrassed to be naked, there's usually something in their conscience that seared them in a sense of a public display of nakedness. And I believe it goes back to the garden and sin. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, they felt naked. They didn't even know they were naked. They were naked. They were a perfect man, perfect woman with no degeneration on their, on their molecular structure. They were the perfect man and woman, and they were naked without shame. But when sin came, there was a sense of shame for their nakedness, and they tried to cover their nakedness. And I really believe that, that, that natural humility we all have to cover our nakedness is very natural to our sinful nature but it wasn't there in the beginning. So someone like Job would say, naked I came from the womb, naked I'll go, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken, blessed be the name of the Lord. God would say, from the dust you came, the dust will return. When the spirit leaves a body, it's amazing how fast death enters into that body. And many of you know that from experiences. The moment my mom passed almost two years ago, and her spirit left the room the body goes cold and the, the flower of her youth where she was so beautiful in in the, the 40s in high school she was the as my dad would say she was the belle of the ball at 85 she's gone the ultimate price of sin is our dead body from the dust we can the dust will return I go the way of all men so it Bible says. David said it, Joseph said it in the Old Testament. So the wage of sin is death. And sin brings a sense of shame and a sense of nakedness. It does. So when David confessed, In Psalm 51, that he sinned against God. When he confessed, when confronted by Nathan, that he had sinned, he said, I have sinned. And it was a legitimate confession. So when we cast ourselves wholly upon the Lord in our dark moment, God knows our heart. And if we're truly humbled and humiliated by that, it's actually something he receives. Because David said in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite spirit is what is pleasing to the Lord. He said, I would have offered bulls and animals and sacrifices, but that's not what you're interested in. You're you're not interested in the man who committed adultery against his buddy's wife, who had his buddy murdered. You're not interested in bulls and goats. You're interested in a broken and a contrite spirit. And take not thy spirit from me. So the people here, like, do whatever seems best to you. They are absolutely broken, and they said, we have sinned, and their confession is valid. It's a true confession, and I was saying this, but I'll say it again. Many of you know with your adult children or your kids when they're younger or your spouses that they've come and gone and left, whatever. We've all heard people say they've sinned and they're sorry, but not change and not really show that they're Sorry. True confession with God is not just acknowledging the wrong in the action and the act that got you here or even acknowledge that you're miserable and what it brought upon your life. True confession really is an agreement to put action to that confession. Because again, the Bible has many people who say I've sinned, but they don't find forgiveness. We We cast ourselves upon the Lord to say "What." you know, whatever seems best to you. And in preparing for this study, I thought of so many people that I've known in ministry, particularly high-profile people, I'll be honest, pastors, high-profile pastors who had falls from grace in ministry and they've lost their ministries or whatever and the various things that happened. And I tried to think about which ones were broken by it and better for it. I mean, Jimmy Swagger's still going. So I'd like to think he's he's the better for it. I mean, he's still preaching the gospel, so I'm very grateful for that. But it cost him something what he did. The Lord knows. But when we say we've sinned, it's against God. And so we're acknowledging before God. And hopefully, and again, thinking of other people, I've tried to think of other people like what happened in their life after their fall? They lost this church or they did this. They did this with money. They did this with women or whatever it might be. Like what actually happened five years later, 10 years later? Where are they now? Did they learn the lessons? Were they broken and were they different? The Lord knows. But you and I don't need to confess other people's sins to the Lord. We need to confess our sins to the Lord. And the same way we say stay in your lane, stay in my lane, my lane is me making things right with the Lord. Yours is your your lane is you making things right with the Lord. There is a we in this, so, I mean, it was collective, but really it's more individual for us as we think about it. Do whatever seems best, I've sinned. That's a good start. And let me say this. You know, in ministry, I can't tell you in 34 years how many people will never say they've sinned. They're really like Fonzie and Happy Days back in the day. They can't say they were wrong. Remember that? I mean, the, we grew up with Happy Days in the 70s, and Fonzie could never say I was like, I was... And he could never say that he was wrong. That was like one of the storylines of the TV show Happy Days. Hey, Fonzie, he's never wrong because he's the cool guy. No, Fonzie is wrong. We're all, we all sin. If anyone says they don't sin, they deceive themselves and the truth is not in them. 1 John chapter 1. We sin. And failure is inevitable. Growth is optional. You learn from failure. In coaching elite surfers, I'd say, you know, winning feels better than losing. Amen? All you athletes, coaches out there, there's quite a few of you. Listen, I like winning a lot more than losing. Winning feels way better. That's how you know, like you're trying to figure out how do you motivate a 14 year old when they're you know, nervous about this? I say, look, hey, 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 look. In 20 minutes, you're going to be a winner or a loser. <laughs> winning feels better than losing. Forget about these guys. Go out and win because you'll feel better. And they win. I'm like, see, I told you winning feels better. If they lose, then I say, you know what? Winning feels better, but you learn more from losing. You learn way more from losing. Even Tom Brady loses Super Bowls before he wins more of them. You learn from losing. And our failures, our sins, teach us not to put any confidence in our flesh. They teach us that if anyone thinks they stand, take heed, lest they fall. And that's what they teach us. We have to be humbled by our failures, so when we're confessing our failures, we're realizing like, hey, well, it's like me. You don't listen to, you listen to me for 45 to 50 minutes on a Saturday night. I, I prepare it. Then I hear it, I teach it, and I think, oh, that was lame, or that was all right, you know. And then I listen to it, and I edit it for podcasts and whatever. I'm critiquing what I say from this pulpit every week from two different studies. And after a while, you're like, you know, like, how many times am I going to take this rabbit trail and go off on this tangent that has nothing to do with the context of the Bible study? Like, that's just chaff before the Lord, And it's more time for me to edit it. And my pauses have become more pronounced because I'm trying to grow and learn from, like, that I don't say something I I shouldn't say, and then I have to edit it later. You know, I always thought Pastor Chuck was so profound when he paused for, like, ten seconds. And all. Uh, You know, uh, fellas, uh, well, anyways, He just filtered something, so you don't hear it on the C two thousand series or the C three thousand series. He just filtered it. I'm like, oh, I just thought he was just like gathering his thoughts. Now he's filtering his thoughts, growing and learning. Just because I think it doesn't mean I need to say it. And all during the COVID crisis, I'm like, why am I saying this? I'm not saying this because I'm getting this from my Bible study time. I'm getting this from reading the news and getting furious. You don't need to come here and hear me be furious because of the news. You can do that on your own. You need the living water. Because in Revelation 22, it says there's living water, clear water. You don't need to come in here, and I mean muddle up the water. It's a good well, this is a good well. This right here is clear water. This is a good well. You don't need me or any other pastor, or any other woman in the, in the pulpit making the water dirty because they're upset about something. I have got be treated men a lighter. So we want to grow. I sinned. Don't listen to that person. Don't watch that thing. Don't let that push my buttons. Like There's all kinds of different sins that can make you feel foolish and embarrassed and naked. But what we must do is what I'm saying right now is you got to go forward from it. Because what does it say they do? This is interesting because they put some action to it. It says that they put away the foreign gods from among them and serve the Lord. That's a two for one, right? Because you're putting away and you're going in this direction. You're releasing this to grab that. So when there's confession and brokenness before the Lord from our failures, we're, we're letting go of just like, let it go already. Just let that relationship go. It's never going to work. It's never going to be blessed. Let that go. The Lord is not in it. It's, it's not. It's like when your donkey's talking to you like Balaam, like, dude, just turn around already. Just let it go. Haven't always been faithful to you, the donkey says to Balaam. When a donkey's talking with the voice of man, I think you would be listening. But when you're so determined that you've got this great plan to get all the money and think you can serve the Lord at the same time, just skew it a certain way. Just let it go. So put away and embrace the Lord. Put away the foreign gods. Those foreign gods all represented different lust and sins and wealth and uh, sexual lust and anger and wrath and all these things. And these these idols, all, all these gods that they served are the surrounding Canaanites represent our ideologies that we, we, we are tempted to serve every day when we walk outside this church. And they're not to own us, but we're to own them. Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon, for example. Like, but he entrusts some people lots of mammon, and that's a good thing. So he entrusts mammon to people who let God rule over the mammon. Otherwise, you're just building your own mammon without the hand of the Lord over it. So the key is in that brokenness to to take the right steps to go forward from that grow to, to confess and to grow and learn and go forward. Of course, my sister is an amazing example of this, having now been sober for four and a half years. Many of you know, but my sister was homeless for almost six years, living behind the dollar store in Vista with her grocery cart by the Dempsey dumpster. And um, bad men really bad men prescription drugs and alcohol train wrecked her life and a couple physical injuries and she needed knee surgery so when I would see her on the streets of Vista at 7 in the morning yelling at a streetlight drunk she's limping because she has a, a wounded like a wounded seagull she had a blown out knee and I remember her saying to me on that Mother's Day five years ago it's, it's hard to have a job. It's hard to pay your bills. I'm like, I think it's harder what you're doing. Isn't it hard to limp around Vista, drunk, cursing streetlights with a bad leg and get in fights with everybody? I always remember that day I said to her, The, the next thing for you is to go to rehab and to finish it. Because she always had a quarter point in rehab, she's already been out of jail court or point rehab, and finish it, and she did. She took the next step. She stayed, then lived in the halfway house with 20 women for a year, then about seven women for another year where she was the director of the house. Then she was the temp person at Macy's, and then she was the regular person at Macy's, and then she became a manager at Macy's. Then she cleared all of her debt, and then she had surgery to repair her knee. And then my mom's inheritance her allowed her to buy a home and move to Florida, where she was salesperson of the month in October at Home Depot in Vero Beach. It didn't happen overnight, but it was all these little steps. And one thing that was very interesting to me when I knew my sister was truly broken, this is very important. It's important to me, because it really ministered to me. In all of her rehab stuff, because you have to make things right. Like, so at one point when she was on drugs, she stole the $1,000 silver bar from her son, Jimmy. At my dad's house she broke in stole the silver bar sold it for drugs so you have to make restitution all this stuff so like so you put away the foreign gods and make things right so she in her rehab uh, accountability she worked at macy's as a temp person minimum wage all that time taking the bus public transportation took her years before she could drive again remember she went to d she had to go to dui school for 18 months because you young people if you get a dui and it's like a point Oh, 08, you know, it's an easier DUI to clear up. If you're like 1.8, it's twice as long. So it took my sister a year and a half, almost two years to get her license renewed after she began the process because I haven't had two DUIs. But if she rebuilt her life, one thing that you could never do is you could never make an excuse or blame someone else. Think about that. You could never make an excuse or blame someone else this is what you did, self-determination, and now you're choosing to do this to make things right. So she worked like a whole month to pay Jimmy back for stealing the silver bar. And by the way, Jimmy never wanted to have anything to do with his mom, but after she paid back the silver bar, he was willing to have communication with her after like not having anything to do with her for a couple years. Because it's embarrassing when your mom's on the street yelling at streetlights. It's very embarrassing, but that put away and serve the Lord, she put away this and she moved toward that. And as you begin to do that, then God honors that and he blesses your life. Now, I'm not sure what I need to put away or you may need to put away or people we love that we see this week will need to put away, but this is what's in the text. The New Testament does tell us to put off the old man, to put off lying and malice and, and malicious speaking and put on truth and words of edification. It tells us to him who steals, steal no more, let them work hard if they have something to give to those who have less. In the book of Genesis, chapter 35, when Jacob, when God spoke to Jacob and said, come, come to Bethel, we need to have a little talk here. You're the the prince of Israel and we need to have a talk. And he was going to go give an account to God. The first thing he said to his kids was, hey, come here and give me all your false gods. Give me all your foreign gods, And he said, we need to put these away. And he dug a grave at the Terebinah tree. And he buried all the things that were offensive to the Lord in the household. And then he went to go meet with the Lord. He put away to make it right. We put off to put on. So we have a confession. That we can finally not not like Fonzie and make excuses. We can admit this. No, I am sinning against God. This is the way it is. Yep, this is game film. This is the, this is a court of law. This is the this is the TV. This is the camera at the intersection. Yep, that's me. I ran that red light. You know when they remember you said the cameras, the red light cameras, and get the ticket that way. They quit doing that because people cause accidents because they'd see them. I mean, I got so busted. 2000, I was at Big Calvary speaking, and um, we just started the Worship Generation, and we still live in Vista. And I got off at uh, Ortega Highway, and I, I was making the left turn to go like the like McDonald's or whatever it was. It was late at night. And I ran that red light. And it was like, poof, 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 you know, when they had all the lights and all that? Remember when it, did? it was like, I was, I was like and, and all these lights went off, right? And I was like, and, and then later on you see the sign that says, hey, this is uh, one of these traffic lights. Man, the picture I got from San Juan Capistrano was epic. I mean, I'm like... <laughs> like, it's, it's epic, man. It's in my, it's in my memorabilia stuff somewhere. It's just too epic to throw. It's just like... I'm like, you little sinner. Look at you, running that red light, and the lights... Pff, and you're like... Just so busted. It was an expensive ticket, too, man. It was a couple hundred. It's like, you know... It offset any honorarium kind of thing. It's like, oh, no. oh. Yes, I ran the red light. I will now slow down at yellow lights. Instead of running red lights, put off the old man. Always in a hurry, put on the new man. Just exhale. See, that's how it works. And what's super favorable for all of us is the heart of the Lord. This is a very unique verse. How often you see a verse like this with the Lord? And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. That's a fascinating verse. First of all, that God refers to himself as a soul. Because even for us in the human experience, we have a hard time defining our soul. We're spirit, mind, and body. So we often uh, associate the soul with our mind, like our brain, like that. God is triune in nature, of course, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The universe is triune, time, space, and matter. And here this terminology has the idea like His soul, who he is, like his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. When we're in sin and we're struggling and we're wrestling, this is a fascinating thought. Like, we think God wants to bring the hammer. Like, man, God's going to bring the hammer. He's going to bring the wood to me on this one. Actually, it's the opposite. And you parents of adult children who have had adult children make bad decisions, you understand like the prodigal son where you're not out to crush your children that have made bad decisions I mean, it may frustrate you to no end with bad decisions, but you're for them. It's not like you wake up and say, hey, I hope you guys lose. Like, y- y- you know, like, roll over and die in your sin. We would never be like that. Like, it's like my mom. See, when I gave up on my sister, I was like, I can't do this anymore. She leaves me these messages when she's out of her mind, and they're horrible. They're, like, demonic to me. So I, I wasn't smart enough to know that you can block a call. I just changed my phone number. Baby we are a little slow sometimes. But it's the only time I ever changed my number because I couldn't take these calls. And my sister would show up at my mom's house, like drunk, I want to take a shower, I live here, and my mom would let her take a shower, my mom would feed her a meal. My mom never gave up being kind to my sister. And she'd be like, You you need I'm like, no, I don't have to do anything. She's my sibling, she's your daughter. You can't give up on her because she's your daughter. I give up on her because she's my sister. Like how you make theology up as you go along in life. That, that was my theology. And like, i like, I'm just keeping my distance. I don't want to talk to her. I don't want to see her. It's, it's horrible. It's hard to watch. See, my mom never gave up on her. My mom never approved her in what she was doing, never condoned it. She spoke into my mom's house and stole from her too. But my mom forgave her. her. Her boyfriend, who was a drug addict, was a former Navy SEAL, and he threatened to kill both my parents. And my mom would still let my sister show up and have a meal. and See, that's what 1 Corinthians 13 has in mind. Love bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things, because love never fails. You know, that's a really important verse for us to understand, 1 Corinthians 13, because that's the love of God working in our hearts. That's like, that's the love that Jesus has even when Judas betrays him with a kiss. God takes no pleasure, we're told, in the death of the wicked, in the book of Ezekiel. So when we, when we confess our sin, when we make things right, God's cheering us on. I mean, you read about the Cod of Witnesses in Hebrews chapter 12 that cheer us on. They are cheering us on for repentance. They're cheering us on to make it right. They're cheering us on to make the 180-degree turn and go from doing what's wrong to doing, to doing what's right. They're, they're cheering us on. Do you realize the host of heaven—WD, listen to me very carefully— The host of heaven is on our side to turn it around when we're going in the wrong direction. And it says here that his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Even when Ahab, like one of the worst kings ever, when he did one thing good, God pronounced mercy on him for taking one decision and one action in a favorable direction. It's always the right time to do the right thing and go in the right direction. And if it doesn't seem like God really cares or he's not listening, whatever, you still need to do what's right. Because your heart might be hard. Your, your conscience might be a little brittle. But to, to confess and agree and to move in the right direction is in the best interest for our being in this universe and the day of the Lord. But it is also that which God is favorable for, for his people and for his children. He's for us when we're repenting. He's for us when we're we're making the crooked path straight. He's for us when we call people and say we're sorry. He's for us when we restore $1,000 to our son because we stole the silver bar. He is for us. His soul breaks when he sees you yelling at a streetlight at 7 in the morning out of your mind. He wants to get you from the Dempsey dumpster to this beautiful house in Vero Beach, Florida where you see the flamingos and the armadillos, and the lizards, and the frogs. And he's so much for you, not only does he give you this house, he gives you the beautiful lot right next to it. That's the jungle world the animals come out of. Against all odds, he gives you that property as well. It's yours. God wants to do good for us. God is for us. He's a blessing God. And he blesses confession, acts of repentance, and he blesses going in the right direction, and when we read that eyes not see nor ear heard those things he has for us, honestly, the body of Christ has no idea when it rebels against God what they're missing out on and what great things he really has for those people when they're willing to agree with God that they're in the wrong and they're willing to learn from their mistakes and go in the right direction. Now, worship generation, I think we're a very healthy church. I think as a whole, we are all, we're a healthy church. You're, you're, you're strong in the Lord, but we fail. And we make mistakes. We, don't, we, we do things we regret. We do things we're embarrassed by. There's a game film out there. I don't want to see yours, and I don't want you to see mine. Amen? Do you want me to see your game film? No. And I definitely want you to see mine. So let's agree on that one right now. But God sees all the game film, and he wants to improve our, our field of play. He wants to help us like, hey, that's not the, this, this is what it looks like when you do it right. Put off, put on. God is for us, and we don't want to grieve him and quench him and really cause him sorrow. We want to cause him rejoicing. So as we go forward on the back end, this last stretch of um, 2021 20, with 2022 around the corner, let's just be open to things God's saying. You know, like, I've tried to work with you on this, but I, I'm going to try again. I'm going to try again to show this to you, and let's, let's work on this. And, and let's just agree with God. We're, we're wrong, and how to make it right. And we'll be healthy. It'll be healthy for us. It'll be healthy for the people we love. It'll be healthy for humanity. It's a total win-win for everybody. When the people of covenant cast themselves wholly upon the Lord and say, do whatever seems best to you, only deliver us. Confess it, turn, and bring him joy as he's for us in that direction. Because it's hard to kick against the goads, but it's much better to go downhill with the Lord in a good way where he's got your back.